for us to get started. So we'll go ahead and, and work on getting started. Uh, do y'all hear me okay? I mean, volume okay? Good? You okay? Good. Um, welcome. You made it through the rain. And for those of you that are online, we welcome you all also. And uh, glad that you're here also. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, as you all know, we've been kind of working on this class, First uh, Timothy, and, and ultimately we'll get into Second Timothy. Uh, but tonight we'll we'll progress on in the next section of looking at that. It is a, a textual study, looking at uh, verse, pretty much verse by verse, I guess you'd say, or paragraph by paragraph. I'm going to ask for prayer request in in just a few minutes. So, you know, we're uh, living in a crazy world, and sometimes in the middle of the week, it's just encouraging to to be together. It's encouraging to see one another and get a chance to catch up a little bit. I know there are a lot of different things that are happening uh, among our numbers. I think uh, I heard um, about somebody, was it Leah Hunt, who had an uncle who who passed away uh, recently, maybe today even? I I don't know. I'm sorry. I think I heard that earlier today. But any other prayer requests this evening y'all have, y'all would like me to lift up in prayer? Yes, sir. Your mother, Victoria? She's at Jackson Hospital, Jackson? Okay. Did you say blood clot? Mm. Mm, Okay. All right, other prayer requests this evening. Okay. All right, well, let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful, grateful for the many blessings you've given to us. Father, we just praise your name for the, the beauty of the world that you've given us to live in and the uh, amazing way that, that the rains come and, and go and, and just the, the whole environment you've given us to live in. We thank you so much for that and for your awesome and mighty power. We, we are amazed. Father, we're thankful that um, we can be here tonight as brothers and sisters and look together at your word and try to look at how we might be more pleasing to you and and how we go about our lives. Father, we pray for many that are suffering in one way or another. Perhaps they've lost loved ones or, uh, and you know, the heartache and the different situations that exist around that, that touch the congregation one way or the other. And Certainly, Father, we pray for those that are sick, that are dealing with various illnesses. And tonight, in particular, we want to mention Victoria at Jackson Hospital and the blood clot she's dealing with. We pray for effective treatments for her and that uh, she'll be able to get through this very quickly. Father, we pray, continue to pray for an end to the pandemic as soon as possible and uh, the resumption of, of more and more usual life. Father, we pray for our own Christian commitment and our passion to do what you've commanded us to do and pray that we'd be about your business in our lives. Forgive us where we haven't been. Forgive us where we've sinned by either omission or or commission. Father, help us to go forward and live our lives better. Help us to be willing to repent where we need to repent. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, thank you all for being here. you know, last week, uh, we looked at uh, really part of uh, chapter 1 and 
began to look at chapter 2 just a little bit, and tonight we're going to progress on into chapter 2. So if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's where we'll be uh, starting in tonight in the very first verse. Uh, Last week we looked at several things, though. We certainly looked at the the concept or idea of acting ignorantly and in unbelief, uh, as Paul described it, and what things were pertinent to that consideration. Uh, We looked at uh, falling away. You know, what what does it mean to fall away? Can you fall away? Uh, We talked a little bit about church discipline. Uh, We talked about prayer, uh, praying uh, for everyone, but but in particular, we we talked about praying for uh, those in authority or our government leaders and that sort of thing and and how we uh, respect them and honor them. So, uh, but tonight we're going to, we're going to delve a little deeper in chapter two. So I want to uh, start with looking at chapter 2, and we're going to start, I'm going to reread the first couple of verses that I actually read last week, but we're going to reread those verses so, because I want you to get the fuller context of verses 1 through 8. Uh, so we're going to read verses 1 through 8. It says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. I'm going to focus in actually on that verse 8 first because I want to kind of deal with that and and tie that back into even the first verse. Uh, it mentions lifting holy hands. Uh, you know, that actually was a, a fairly commonly mentioned prayer posture in the Old Testament. Uh, when you go back through the Old Testament, there are several references to people praying with their hands lifted. And so, uh, but even then, it was not really described as a, as a requirement. It was described as, as what went on, what, what some of them did. Now, and I would say it's not a requirement today. Well, well, why would we say that? Well, um, you know, it wasn't a requirement then. There obviously are, are many biblical examples of people praying without lifting their hands up. So, um, but, but even having said that, though, if, if someone were to pray and lift their hands, well, well, then that would be biblical. I mean, we have biblical example of that. Now, I, I can't and you can't, none of us can, we can't know the motivation of people that do that or don't do that or whatever. Uh, you know, your heart could be right in doing it, your heart could be wrong in doing it. You're in the same way, not raising your hands, your heart could be right or wrong. Uh, but the lifting of hands in prayer would be a, a biblical thing uh, from the, the fact that we have had some examples. But, but the other part of verse 8 I want to make mention of is... Um, Again, it's talking about prayer. Well, think back all the way back to verse 1. How does this section of Scripture start? Well, it starts talking about prayer. Well, verse 8 does what? It helps wrap up that thought. So 
So it begins with talking about praying for everyone and, and government leaders so that we can have tranquil and quiet lives. Uh, and then at the very end of this paragraph, you might say, uh, he mentions, therefore, you know, I want people to raise, pray, uh, lifting holy hands and that sort of thing. So the, the real um, uh, focus, I guess you'd say, of that of that paragraph is is prayer. Now, there's a lot in that paragraph, though, and we're gonna we're gonna go into that paragraph very much in depth tonight. Uh, but but I want you to remember that it's part of a discussion about about prayer. Um, now, now what I want to do is I really want to focus on this powerful idea of you know that God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to be saved. And the first thing I'd say is, what a blessing, right? What a blessing that is that we have a God that wants us to be saved. You know, the God of the universe is concerned about my decision relative to Him. He's concerned about your decision relative to Him. And He wants a particular decision. He wants us to be saved. It's different. I think I might have mentioned this before. It's different from the pagan gods that existed then and, and frankly, even now. Um, in that, the pagan gods of that time were, were very interested, allegedly, interested in uh, being served and having sacrifices made to them, but they really did not, by and large, care. Even as, as people discussed these false gods, they really did not, by and large, care about their, their subjects. They cared about themselves. So in the first century world, in, in anyone that had uh, inter, uh, interacted with the Jewish people prior to that, this idea of having a God that was interested in man was a little bit unusual and unique. And particularly here, explicitly, Paul points out that God wants us to be saved. So, so now I'm going to ask you a question. I'd like to hear your answers. What does it mean to be saved? What would you tell somebody if they came to you and said, okay, you talk about being saved. What do you mean by being saved? What would you tell them? Sins are remitted. Okay. All right. Being saved means your sins are remitted. What else? Being in a right relationship with God, right? And part of that is sins forgiven, but forgiven. But there's there's more, right? Being in a right relationship with God, okay? Being obedient to God, right? Okay. To to be in a, a right relationship, to have your sins forgiven, you have to be obedient, right? You have to have that obedient faith. Excuse me. <coughs> To have something worth living for. Okay. Let me ask you to think about a word. I, I agree with each comment that has been made. Let me add a comment. Okay. Doesn't mean y'all are wrong and I'm right. This is just an additional comment. Think about the word rescued. Could you substitute the word rescued for saved? And some of you are nodding your head. Yes. Well, let's think about that. What would you be rescued from? Be rescued from your sins, okay? Be rescued from hell, from eternal punishment for your sins, right? Okay. I heard somebody else back here. 
Satan. Be rescued from Satan. Very good comment. Okay, rescued from Satan. Absolutely. Very powerful thought of being delivered. Excellent. Again, all of those are true. Let me add to that. One of the struggles that exists in our society today is, is depression. And a lot of people are depressed. Not in every case. And I don't mean that. I'm, I'm meaning amongst secular people. Secular people might be depressed because they see their lives as being meaningless. Meaningless, right? They, they don't have a relationship with God. They can't answer the questions of where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And they suffer from that knowing or thinking that their lives are, are meaningless. Well, we can be we, we can be rescued from, from that lack of peace, right? God can give us peace that passes understanding, as, as it says. But, but we can be rescued from having a life without peace and have a life that, in fact, does have peace. And then much like Nell said, we can be rescued from an eternity in, in hell from suffering for for what? For our continued disobedience to God. Our unwillingness to be repentant. We can be rescued from that. God's made it possible. Not only has He made it possible, but He wants to rescue us from that. Now what does the rest of that verse say? When it says God wants us to be saved, it also says what? And what? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. He wants us to be saved and what? And to come to a knowledge of the truth, right? So he is interested in us having knowledge. Now, let's talk about that. He talks about it. He, he gives some answers. You know, well, how do we come to a knowledge of the truth? Well, look at, look at what the verses say about what God has done to help us do that. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So from these verses, I would say God facilitates our knowledge of the truth by by Jesus. We can start with Jesus, right? Jesus functioned as what? A mediator between God and man. What else did he do? He functioned as a, a savior. What does the what do these verses say? Teacher? Preacher? All right, well, it specifically mentions mediator, right? An intermediary between God and man. It specifically mentions ransom. Ransom for what? A ransom for our sins, right? So he functions in, in that role. He also functions as a testimony. Okay? What does that mean? When it says Jesus here is functioning as a testimony, what does that mean? 
person to make innocent the person who being accused. Okay. All right. So uh, uh, Dean was talking about thinking of a court situation where a person might be a, a, a witness who might uh, thereby help set the accused free. Okay. He, he's that. He's a testimony of, of God's love for mankind. Right? He's a testimony that God will do what he said he would do. Right? So he's a testimony in, in many different ways. So now... Jesus is mentioned here as, as part of this uh, process of making sure we come to a knowledge of truth. Who else is mentioned here? Paul mentions himself. And Paul says what? I'm, I'm an apostle and a teacher, or a preacher and an apostle, he says here. Now there are other roles described elsewhere in the New Testament. Turn to Ephesians, flip over in your Bibles, over to the book of Ephesians. We'll look at chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, Scripture says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, our knowledge obviously is important to God. He has made various uh, provisions for us to be able to get that knowledge. And, and I would say it's important to God because He loves us and He wants us to know what is best for us. He really is concerned about us having the knowledge that we need to make the right decisions to <clears throat> be able to enjoy the best life now and the best life later. So again, what does it mean to be saved? Well, many of the things that were mentioned here tonight, also, you know, we're saved from a meaningless life. We're saved from a life without peace. You know, and we're saved from, from hell, from suffering eternally for the consequences of, of unrepentant sin in our lives. But it also means that we have received this knowledge of salvation from a loving God. A God who cares about us. I don't know about you, brothers, but that, that's a, such a blessing. <laughs> um, so, so let's delve on. Let's, let's, let's look at what God wants. Again, go back to 1 Timothy. Go to chapter 2. <clears throat> I want to look at verse 4 again. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, let's explore some of the implications of that desire. In other words, God desires that all men be saved and that they come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's explore that a little bit. I really want to focus on this because of some of the phrases I hear, some of the comments I hear that, that many people say, and I want us to think about what they imply. Okay, One of those sayings might be, whatever will be, will be. 
Have you ever heard anybody say that? You know, whatever will be, will be. You know, that happened. Well, whatever would be was going to be. That was going to happen. That's one example. Here's another one. God has already set my path in life, but I need to find it. My individual path, I'm searching for my path in life. My path, not, not your path, not Christians' paths. My path. And then another uh, thought, not so much a saying, is that there are people that believe that if we're going to go to hell or if we're going to go to heaven is determined by the point in time at which we're born. And they think that we are individually predestined to heaven or hell from our very beginning. Now, each of those sayings has a relationship to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit. Let's go back to that saying, whatever will be, will be. Usually people say that when maybe something bad has happened, right? I mean, you know, well, it happened. And whatever's going to be is going to be. Another time that people say this is maybe when they're about to take on some great risk, maybe maybe an unnecessary risk. And they go, well, you know, if it's, if it's meant to turn out all right, it'll, it'll turn out all right. Now, let's think about the bad thing that happened. Let's suppose a really bad thing happened in your life. Well, if you just sort of listen to that saying, you might turn around and say what? You might say, well, okay, does that mean God wanted this bad thing in my life because it was all sort of preset that this was going to happen? I don't know that I really want to say that. Think about risk-taking. Okay? If someone's taking a great unnecessary risk, <clears throat> and I say this knowing there's risk in everything in life, but we're talking about great unnecessary risk. And if we say, well, whatever will be, will be, and I can take this great unnecessary risk and whatever. Well, this statement implies what? It implies that God's going to take care of me no matter what that unnecessary risk is that I'm about to take. Because it's, it's already sad if I'm going to come through this okay or not. Well, okay. Let's think about a couple of examples of problems here. Okay, bad thing happens in my life. You know, what if my child gets run over by a drunk driver? Do I assume God wanted my child to get run over by a drunk driver? I don't think so. You know? What about the unnecessary risk? Okay, if a high wire person who works without a net walks across the high wire but falls to their death, you know, whatever will be, will be. Does that mean that's what God wanted to happen you know he could have stopped it well, I don't think God wants drunk drivers on the road running over children I also don't think God wants us taking these wild unnecessary risks either let's, let's look at the, the next statement I mentioned God has already set a path for my life and I just need to find my individual path well that saying implies something right it implies that, that the path for my life is already set. Uh, and I've just got to find it. In other words, I don't really have any choice. It's, it's set. Well, what if you thought you found that path? 
And it turned out that it was a bad whatever, a bad job, a bad relationship. Okay, well, if you think I was on the right path and God told me to be on that path and that's the path I was supposed to be on, well, then what do you do? Do you turn around and blame God for the bad relationship or the bad job? Or, or do you blame God because He didn't prevent you from making that choice? Again, think about what those sayings imply. And some people hear them that way. And then the third saying that I referenced was when people really believed that the, their individual destiny was determined at the time they were born already, if they were going to go to heaven, if they were going to go to hell. Well, this means what? That means before you took any action, it was already determined. And even if you thought, well, I need to take a different action, doesn't matter, right? Your path's already determined. Your, your destiny, your predestination is already determined. That's what this saying implies. <clears throat> as kindly as I can say it, you know, if you believe in a God that destines you to hell at the day you're born, you believe in a very cruel God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God of love. The God of the Bible wants you to be saved. He didn't say He wanted some people to be saved. He wants what? All people to be saved. That's what He wants. Well, you may go, you may say, well, yeah, Robert, I hear you, but, but I've said some of those things myself. And that isn't really what I meant. I understand. I understand that. And I guess what I'm asking for is all of us to be, to be thoughtful about some of the things that we say. Even though we may not mean them a certain way, someone may what? That, that's what they may hear. They may hear not what we intended. So there are some statements out there like that that do not coincide with or not congruent with what the Bible says, and they may take it the wrong way. So, so let's just be careful to realize that some of the things we say, that we may say and mean in a different way, can be taken in a very um, different way, can be taken in a way that impugns uh, cruelty to God that, that we don't mean. But let's be careful about some of the things that we say. Now, let me phrase some of this a little bit differently. God is all-powerful. Does the all-powerful God of the universe always get what He wants? <laughs> Not with people, George says. I, I, you know, we kind of snicker, but that is such a precisely right answer, George, because He gets it with the other things, right? I mean, if, if He wants the universe to twist or turn or do whatever... It doesn't. Uh, but not with people. Not with people. So the very complicated answer to the question of does God always get what He wants is no. He does not. Yeah. So the verse 4 tells us what God definitely wants and people don't always make that decision so it's obvious he doesn't, God doesn't always get what he wants. Well, think about biblically, the children of Israel. The children of Israel would do what? They would be faithful for a while and then do what? 
Go back into sin. Fall away, right? Well, God didn't want him to fall away. You know, think about 1 Timothy chapter 1. Toward the end, it talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who made a shipwreck of their faith. Well, did God want them to make a shipwreck of their faith? No. So did God get what He wanted? No. He didn't. He didn't get what He wanted. Turn to John. Gospel of John chapter 5. I want to look at one more example where, where Jesus Himself sort of, I guess... Uh, in teaching a lesson, sort of references a little bit what I'm talking about. If you turn to John chapter 5, look at two verses, verse 39 and verse 40. Uh, Jesus is speaking to some Jews there when He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me, and you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. In other words, what? You could have life. But what? You're unwilling, or they were unwilling, to come to Him so that they could have life. Again, what did God want? God wanted them to come. But they didn't. They did not will to come to Him. Okay. Now, our God is not powerless, right? He is all-powerful. Well, God clearly did create the opportunity for us to come to Him. In His great power, He created the opportunity for us to come to Him. He has the ultimate power to set His plans for mankind. I want to read this correctly. He has the ultimate power to set His plans for mankind as a whole in motion But Scripture points out what? That God does not force us to choose Him. He has ultimate power. He sets up the opportunity, but He does not force our choice. Now, again, He doesn't get what He wants all the time. He he wants us to be saved. Let's be careful, though, because some folks use a verse that, that kind of trips us up. Look at Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9. In this discussion of God's power in individual predestination, many people go to Romans chapter 9. I want to look at that with you a little bit. Romans 9, we're going to start at verse 19 and look through verse 21. It says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, this metaphor of of the potter and the clay is used several times in the Old Testament. In particular, if you go back and look at Jeremiah and Isaiah, you'll see it used very powerfully. Now, Paul uses it here, but he goes back and and looks at the context. If we go back and look at the context of how that metaphor was used, it's pointing out that God has power and He has authority. And what's what Paul is saying here? God has power and He has authority. When he uses it in Romans 9, he's saying 
God can set up the system the way He wants to set up the system. And, and He does, and He did, and He has. And He executes the system the way He wanted to set it up. He is all-powerful. He can do that. But it's also true that God required man to what? Make an obedient faith decision to follow Him. And as George said, that's the part He doesn't control. But that means what? It means God chose not to control it. God left that choice to us. So, so we have to make that choice. So, so God is the architect. He set things up. Uh, you know, and basically He says there are two paths in life. One path is my path that leads to salvation. And the other path is what? Every other path. <laughs> okay, Any other path. But really, there are two paths. Basically, God's path and not God's path. Well, he set that up in his power. Each individual has to decide which path. And they also have to decide what? They have to decide if they're going to stay on the path or not. Now, you can change. So you chose one path, and at some point, you can change. Now, the person who believes in individual predestination would not necessarily agree with me on that. But the Bible makes it clear. You can change from a good path to a bad path or from a bad path to a good path. Two examples I want to point to. The first one is, is you know, again, the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where it talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander. It mentions what? That they had blasphemed and, and they were being handed over to Satan, Right? Why? To be taught not to blaspheme with the idea that they would do what? Come back. That was the goal. But I want to look at another passage that actually uses some of this vessel phraseology that, uh, that you think about in Romans 9. Look at, look at 2 Timothy. <clears throat> Turn to chapter 2, 2 Timothy. We're going to look at verses 20 and 21. It says, Now in a large house... There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So what happened here? A vessel of dishonor did what? Changed, cleansed himself, moved from one path to the other path. Very biblical. And this is actually consistent with Paul's argument again back in Romans. If you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, he makes a, a metaphor there of a vine. And he talks about how branches were broken off, that the Gentiles might be grafted in. But then what does he say? He warns the Gentiles to do what? To be careful because they can then subsequently be broken off if they're disobedient. So it is a consistent argument, and, but that is a, a set of verses that very frequently get used by uh, other people to, I think, twist uh, the view of God and God's plan for man. Now, let's look at this nature of man's relationship to God. I want to look a little bit at that. I know we're going to be short on time here in a bit. God did not make us into robots. 
Right? We're not. We have choices to make. God didn't make us into robots. He made us in His image. He loves us, and He wants us to do what? Love Him back. He wants us to love Him back. Now, real love involves a choice. Okay, let's, let's bring this down to earth. Okay, those of you that are married, if you suddenly found out that your spouse married you because they were told to marry you, it was prearranged, there was no decision involved, they were following through on an order or a contract, I don't know about you, I would not feel very special in that moment, okay? Uh, you know, you just wouldn't. Um, and if that was the situation, there really wouldn't be a, a personal relationship. I mean, you, you didn't develop a real personal relationship of choosing or not being chosen. There's just no real relationship there. Well, the same thing would be true of God. If we're pre-assigned to follow God, well, then there is no choosing. That The nature of the relationship with God would be very different. But God did choose us, and He wants us to choose Him. He wants us to love Him back. Uh, a few examples uh, where God didn't um, control uh, choices. Um, you know, you look at the book of Esther. Uh, I'll just read it quickly. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. In other words, Esther could have made a different choice. Now, God still would have seen that his mission was carried out. It would have come from another place, and Esther would have suffered consequences because of it and her family. But God gave her the choice. Uh, Think about Israel and child sacrifice. And this is uh, from Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Particularly verse 5, but starting in verse 4. It says, Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal, to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it even enter my mind. God says that. You made a choice that it never even entered my mind you would make such a bad choice. So God gives us a choice. We're not predestined from the time we're born. God does want everyone to be saved. Now, just a few final observations and then we'll stop. I know that was second bell. First observation, we are born good. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells me so. In Genesis, it says what? We are made in God's image. Well, God is good and we are made in His image. In Ecclesiastes, there's a verse, verse chapter 7, verse 29, says, see, this alone I found that God made man upright God made man upright. God made man good. But they have sought out many schemes. So we start out good. When a child is born and dies, that child's going to be in heaven. We start out good. Observation number two. 
There are some individuals in Scripture who seem to have been picked out for a good purpose. Um, John the Baptist and Jeremiah are two that come to mind immediately. But even those two had times in their lives where they sort of questioned what they were doing. So they had a choice. And then the final one I wanted to mention was just be careful. (coughs) Some of the most popular religious writers of our day believe in individual predestination. Now that may not be what they're writing on at the moment you're reading it, but, but they do if you'll explore extensively what their writings are and what their beliefs are. So I just say be careful. So finally, in summary, the loving God of the Bible does what? He wants all of us to be saved. He's not predestined us. He wants a loving relationship between us and Him. He's given every one of us the opportunity to choose. We can make a good choice. We can make a bad choice. Thank God that even if we make the wrong choice, He gives us an opportunity to do what? To repent, to change, to come back to Him. Bottom line is, He loves us. And He wants us to love Him back. Thank you all very much for tonight.